0: you are listening to the Invitation Church podcast. To learn more about Invitation Church, visit us online at invitation605.com. You can also download our app on iTunes and Google Play by searching for Invitation 605.
1: Uh, reading today comes from Genesis 3, 1-13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may, eat fruit, or we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to not, not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate.
2: Awesome. Thanks, Thomas. You know, I don't know if you've ever just, like, held a marshmallow in your hand and, like, not eaten it. I I don't know if you've been, like, they just, like, feel good in your hand, right? But it's really hard just to keep it here. Like, it's just great to, I'm not going to eat them all, I could. But I don't know if you've had that moment to be around a campfire and it's like, these things don't last very long. The temptation to eat these things, it's pretty high. And, you know, I could just, like, hand these out to some of you and make you hold it the whole gathering. I won't do that to anybody today. But I want you to think about temptation. I want you to think about the power of temptation. I want you to think about the frequency of temptation. I want you to think about how temptation comes to all of us in different kinds of ways. So I think we can be tempted to eat things. You know, I think we can be tempted to buy things. You know, we could talk about the gravitational pull of Target in the house today. We don't need to do that. Or how a pair of shoes can whisper your name. That's just how it works, it turns out. I think we can also be tempted to speak, though, too, in ways that we have not been called. There's this temptation that we will struggle with to say things about other people. Uh, that are not honoring of God. Maybe there's some words that come out of our mouths at times that we are not proud of. And today in Genesis chapter 3, we get to come face-to-face with this moment of temptation. It's pretty early on in the scriptures. You know, Last week, we're in Genesis chapter 1, and we see God creating the heavens and the earth, and he fills the sky and the seas. His creative hand is all over the place. But then we step into Genesis chapter 3, and we see that evil shows up. You know, we are tempted, I think, to act, to do certain things, but I also think that we're tempted to react. That's maybe two categories that we could think about today. And there's this guy who lived a, a really long time ago. His name is... Martin Luther, and he once wrote this. This is like in the 1500s, just so you know, okay? So he wrote, temptations, of course, cannot be avoided, but because we cannot prevent the birds from flying over our heads, there's no need that we should let them nest in our hair. So you can't stop a a bird from flying over your head, he's saying, but just because you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, that you should allow the bird to create a nest on the top of your head. And so it just brings this question today, like what kinds of temptations are nesting among us? Like what kinds of temptations are a part of our life or a part of our story? What temptations are in this room today? And if I had to guess, I think there's some temptations to speak certain things. I think there's temptations to believe certain things. Of course we have the temptation to buy certain things and there's maybe one or two of us who are tempted to eat certain things. That it's sort of the fabric of our humanity and experience. That there's stuff that we know that we're called to do and then there's the things that we desire to do and want to do. So the context of the book of Genesis where we're at is that God has created. God's created this incredible world and then he's given some instructions and I don't know what your relationship with instructions are. But for many of us we have a very complicated relationship with instructions. You know, we're driving somewhere and we have no really idea where we're going, and so we it's just great because you can just like ask Siri. Some of us don't want to ask Siri. We don't need Siri. We're going to figure it out by ourselves. Or you're getting like some new furniture, right? There's this horrible place called Ikea, and they have this furniture that is really difficult to put together. It looks great, but then the instructions, so annoying, they're not in our language. Have you experienced this? Do you know about this place? So you have to just like figure it out but some of us are actually good with that because we would rather sort of do it on our own we would rather figure this life out on our own we don't need anybody on youtube to tell us how to fix the sink we're gonna do it all on our own and it happens to find its way into our spiritual life too and god gives adam and eve some instructions like hey i have Created all of these things for you. Like, I've given you all of these animals. You get to name the animals, it turns out. That would be very stressful for me, actually. That is, it's a gift in the Bible. But I'm like, right, what do you name this thing? So he gets to do that. But then he gives some instructions to Adam and Eve. Like, hey, like you can enjoy all of this stuff. Just stay away from this one tree. And it's always one tree, isn't it? It's always the one thing, that you're not supposed to touch the one thing you're not supposed to say, the one moment you're not supposed to experience. These are God's instructions, and it turns out that Adam and Eve both have a hard time with the instructions of God. And the good news today is this is a room full of people who happen to have a hard time with the instructions of God. And you're in good company today in the Scriptures, because it's part of what it means to be human. Verse 1, we see that God's voice is always followed by other voices. Do you notice that? Has that been your experience in your life with God, that God speaks something into your life, into your story, into your heart? And there's always other voices. There's always other opinions. There's always somebody who has a truth to speak after God has spoken. And we see that this truth that God's voice creates and God's voice empowers. And so when God is speaking something over your life, a promise over your life, a truth over your life, what is he trying to do? He wants to create something in you, and he wants to empower you. He wants you to see yourself as a person of great worth, empowered through his Holy Spirit to step into the moments that he has prepared. The book of Ephesians, we hear that we are God's workmanship, every single person, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And that word do in the original language means walk. So we're supposed to peripateto. we're supposed to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us and we're workmanship. But what does the evil one want to do? The serpent. The serpent wants to divide and wants to destroy. He wants to divide and wants to destroy people. He wants to divide and destroy families. He wants to divide and destroy organizations and churches. This is what he's always about. You know, Satan never, he never like builds anything cool. He just tears stuff down. You know, he's like every two-year-old goes through that phase, right? You know what I'm talking about and they just want to destroy stuff. No, I'm not calling two-year-old serpents, stop it. But there's this pull in us to just take stuff apart and to tear things down. That's what the evil one wants to do, to divide and to destroy. So we meet the serpent. He's symbolic of evil and all across different kinds of cultures. We do not have great relationship with this kind of reptile, right? It's not a cuddly kind of creature. It's not a cr- I had a bunch of pictures of snakes I was going to put up, but I'm not going to do that because you know what a snake looks like. So it's actually more powerful if your picture can be in your head versus my picture. So we're just going to let your picture rule the day. And they grossed me out. I couldn't do it after a couple of them. <laughs> Symbolic of evil in the world, not a cuddly creature. But it's so interesting to me that the kind of evil that we see in the serpent and in this, this moment, it's, it's not an aggressive evil, but it's like a, it's a sneaky evil, isn't it? And if you think about the moments in the scriptures, like the most dangerous attacks in the Bible... Like there's a lot of battle moments in the Bible, right? This nation is coming against this nation with a battering ram and with arrows where they're gonna try to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem builds these walls to protect themselves from other nations, but that's not the most powerful form of battle and evil in the scriptures. It's the whisper of the serpent to disobey the clear instructions of God. That's actually the most dangerous that we see in the scriptures. And we see it after the book of Genesis. We see it in the story of the nation of Israel. Like they're, they're in captivity in Egypt and they're brought out in this super powerful way. And for the rest of Israel's life, they're always being whispered at. Like, hey, come over here. Like, follow this God. Worship this God. Like, God doesn't care about you. He's not fulfilling his promises to you. That's the, the experience of their whole life. In all of their wandering, there are whispers that seek to draw them away from God. It's it's more dangerous, it's more powerful than the Edomites or the Amalekites or all the other kinds of ites that come against Israel. It's always the serpent. It's the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and it's the serpent at the Mount of Olives whispering to Judas and to the disciples all along the way. We can talk about David. King David, in the way that he has whispered to in his experience. And even when he's in a, in a big position of power, the serpent still continues to whisper to him about what he deserves and what he could take, who he could have power over, and he chooses that. So in David's life, it's not the surrounding nations that are the most dangerous. He takes care of them pretty easily because he's got a bunch of men that he can just send to go attack whoever he wants to attack. But David's attacked by the serpent, isn't he? Again and again and again. We could also talk about Elijah. Elijah has this moment when he just wants to give up and he just doesn't want to live anymore. He's just done There's this depression and this uncertainty that has so weighed him down that he's just done with life. Like who's whispering that it's not the nations that are fighting against him. God's not whispering that it's the serpent whispering to Elijah. Like, yeah, it's this thing is over, man. So serpent, the serpent says to Eve. Like, did God really say that you must not eat any, from any tree in the garden? Like, is that what he really said? And this is, this is a moment where the serpent sows seeds of doubt in the woman's mind, in Eve's mind. Like, is that, is that really what he said? Is that really what he wants? Is this really the situation, or did you misunderstand and, you know, why does he want to do that? Why does the serpent want to plant seeds of doubt in the woman's mind? And why does he want to plant seeds of doubt in, in our mind? It's because that the serpent wants to dictate how we see God and how we see ourselves. So the serpent cares very much about worship and the serpent cares very much about the mirror. And if he can dictate our Perspective and our view of who God is, and if he can dictate the picture that we have of ourselves, then he has achieved a great victory. He wants to redefine God for Adam and Eve and for us. He wants to paint God as what? As this angry, power-hungry ruler who has control at the center of his character. Like God created all of this so he can be in control. So that he can be the king. And it's an abusive kind of power. It's not a loving kind of power, the serpent wants to say. And the serpent wants to paint Adam and Eve and all of humanity as slaves when we're really free. I mean, think about like this land that God has created for his people, for Adam and Eve to live in. And The evil one wants to take this good gift, this land, and twist it and use it against Adam and Eve. He wants us to see ourselves not as God's children, but as captives. Like the evil one doesn't want for you to understand that you're a child of God. He wants you to think that you're a captive in your relationship with God. The God's not interested in walking throughout life with you. He's interested in how much you get right. He's interested in how good of a person you are. He's interested in how much you know. And God is offering freedom. He's offering blessing. He's offering belonging, and he's offering relationship. And what's the serpent offering? The serpent is offering captivity. This is what is all going to happen in Egypt. This enslavement that the serpent offers. And Genesis 1 serves as as our proof for all of that. But God has created this wonderful place for Adam and Eve and the serpent wants to divide and to destroy it. And I love what Paul says in a Galatians 4 about what's true of us. So that you are no longer a slave but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. Like let that one sit with the church for a moment. That you're no longer a slave but a son. We sing a song sometimes in this place like, I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I am a child of God. No longer a slave but a son. And more than that, since you are a son, God's also made you an heir. So the, the things that are coming to Jesus come to us. Oh, that we would get our minds around that. Like, there is an eternity that we will all stand in with the creator of the universe and the one who died for you and for me. So it's more than just being in the family. And there's a lot of people, I think, who want to work really hard to be good enough, to be enough inches tall, so that I can make it in to the family. So I can make it into the place, into this eternal home, this eternal palace that God is creating. And it's interesting that the scripture wants to talk about there's actually more than that. I mean, we we spend a lot of time thinking about like the streets of gold. There's a lot of people who want to talk about the streets of gold and, and God's like, no, 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 I'm making you an error. Of the kingdom, so the stuff that comes to my sons comes to you. This is in Romans six when Paul talks about that when we are buried with Christ and we are raised to life in that same likeness. So every time we baptize somebody at invitation, we. Stick him in the water, we say buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. So resurrection is proof that we are an heir to the kingdom. I keep talking about that, but I'll be done for now. Verse 5. This is the great lie in this scripture. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's my translation. God's holding out on you. God's got one arm behind his back, and there's really good stuff in that hand, and he doesn't want you to have it. This is the moment with a child where you're like, hey, what do you have in your hand? Nothing. No, the other one. And there's a lot of people walking around and their picture of God is that he's not given all for them. He's holding out on them. Like, he doesn't have goodness at the center of his character. He has control at the center of his character. And I would also translate it this way. He wants to keep you separated from him on the outside of the house. God's afraid that you wouldn't choose him if you knew the whole story. God's abusive. He's deceitful and he's unworthy of your love. This is the story that the serpent wants to spin. But the couple, they allow the lie that they hear from the serpent to travel to their hearts. And ultimately to their feet. And this is where the power is in this scripture. Not just, have I heard something that's not true, but I've allowed that thing to go to my heart and ultimately my feet enact what I have heard. And so it becomes this thing that I become. Verse seven and in verse eight, we see two things enter the story that previously had not been a part of the story. And verse 7, we see fear comes on the stage of the story. And so what do they do? They cover up, don't they? And then shame enters the story. So they hide. Right? So they're found to be naked. They didn't realize maybe before that that was going on. And so they... Cover the things they don't think God wants to see, and then they're afraid, so they go and they hide fear and shame. They cover up and they hide from their Father. And then, verse 9, God speaks into the new chaos. You notice that? Like there was chaos before. We talked about that last week the formlessness and the emptiness, the tohu wabohu of the world. And then God speaks into the chaos and brings order. But there's a new chaos that's happened here. It's the chaos of fear and shame. And then God speaks these words into the new chaos. Where are you? Because covering up (laughs) didn't work because it never does. And hiding didn't work very well either. Because God can see and God can know. He knows our hiding places, doesn't he? It's that old game, like hide and seek. I don't know why we hide in the same places, it's just what we do. And I just have a sense in our life with God, we do the same thing. And so God knows very much where we are, but he wants to invite us out of that. And then verse 12 and 13, blame enters the story. So fear comes on the stage, shame comes on the stage, and then that didn't work. And so then in verse 12 and 13, blame enters the story. So Adam blames Eve. Well, hey, this lady gave me this thing, so I ate it. And then Eve passes that on, and she blames the serpent. And you guys, we're only 69 verses into the Bible. We're only 1,755 words into the Bible and already creation has turned on itself. That this world that God has created to be beautiful and good and useful and reflective of who he is is turned on itself. And that is the power of brokenness and the power of sin. But God's not going to let that new chaos live on forever. He has a response. And God's response to this new chaos is his son. He's not going to let this chaos become the ruler of the universe, he is going to send Jesus into the world. And the Gospel of John says that Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. And it's so beautiful to think about the way that grace saves us. And that truth sets us free. Truth doesn't save us. It sets us free. So instead of believing the great lie that God has one arm behind his hand behind his back, he's holding out on us, he's turned his back on us, the truth that we receive is that he sent his son into the world so that we might live, so that he might have a work and a word to speak over the chaos. And he does as he's hanging on a cross, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lemma my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he has three words. In the original language, "Die." it is finished. I have stepped into the moment that you have called me to step into. Jesus Christ full of grace. And Jesus Christ of truth but we're left with a a question today about what kinds of things the serpent has offered us like what are the kinds of things that the serpent has offered us this year ways that he would desire for us to think about God ways that he would like for us to think about other people ways that he would like for us to think about ourselves What kinds of things did the serpent offer us this morning? Again, I wasn't in your house, but the likelihood is high that he's been telling you a story in the couple hours that you've been up today. And the likelihood's high in this moment he's telling you a story right now. And when you get up tomorrow and you get in your car and you drive to wherever you drive or you're logging into work, wherever you're doing, Sign language for work. He's telling you a story. He's placing a marshmallow in your hand, isn't he? Sometimes in the church we talk about how the evil one doesn't care about us. He cares about us very much. Very much. And I'm going to ask that for the rest of them, about the band up as we close. As, we go, as you go through the rest of this day, and you go through the rest of this week, that as the serpent places, seeks to place this marshmallow in your hand, you will remember Jesus Christ full of grace and truth. And he has come to give you grace, and he has come to set you free set you free from the, the lies of the evil one, set you free from, from the law, from the, from the way that you have heard the way of Jesus described, that here's all of these things that I have to do and I have to do them perfectly so that I might be loved of God. And when God says, well, well no, like, I don't, I don't love you because what you do, I love you because you're mine. So my belovedness, the name David happens to mean beloved, by the way. My belovedness does not come from my activity. My belovedness comes from my identity. Where does my identity come from? My identity comes from God. And what he has made possible. So God doesn't love the 45-year-old version of me. He loves me. He doesn't love the 75-year-old version of you where you think, oh, by then, I'm going to have some things figured out and I'm going to get a lot more naps. No, he loves you in this moment with all of your stuff, with all of the chaos. And how do I know that? Because even after Adam and Eve have blown it, what happens? They're removed from the garden But they are brought back through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what's more beautiful than that, that even after totally missing it and totally blowing it, God loves them enough to empty himself. We see all this in Philippians chapter two and becomes obedient to death and even death on a cross. And God exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So even in our disobedience and in our brokenness, the God of the Bible makes a way home. So while the serpent wants to plant a lie in your hand, The Holy One, Jesus Christ, the resurrected King, places a name in your hand. Beloved, chosen, mine.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on the Invitation Church Podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message that you just heard and receive every part of it, every promise from God, every declaration of his great love for you, every word of hope, every reminder that you have been made for more. Allow what you've heard to take root in your soul to allow Jesus to do the deep work that only he can do. I also want to encourage you to be part of what we are doing here at Invitation as we invite people to live the way of Jesus. Go to the app and become a regular giver, an investor in the story that God is writing in this place. Also, if you found the message meaningful, we'd love to have you share it with someone else as you partner with us in carrying the message beyond the walls of the church. I want to thank you for being here with us. Grace and peace.